Amen. You may be seated, saints. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day is a privilege to be able to gather in the Lord's presence to worship him in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Brother Robert, for leading us in worship of the band and all of you. Praise God for each of you. Praise God for his grace and his blessing and the privilege that he has given us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we want to continue to worship him now by receiving, by hearing, by listening to his word worshipfully. For God has a word for us today. And God is not short on his word to us. The Lord has more to say than we could even contain. But such as we are by God's grace, we will take in as much as we can from the Lord's grace today and from the Lord's word today with one commitment that I want to call each and every one of us to. And that commitment, many of you know it already, that commitment is to obey the word of the Lord. For that is the key to understanding. There's no way to understand God's word, the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures, without committing your heart to obeying the word, even before you hear it. Today, we want to pick up with our series again, our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Thankful to the Lord for the privilege of being able to take the little break or excursion that God gave us on last Sunday to talk about the fruit of gratitude. Today we pick up from where we left off. And you'll remember we are in this sermon series of the Gospel of Mark that we've titled Jesus, the Son of God, Suffering Servant, and Savior of Sinners. And as we continue with the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, uh, let us take a moment to remind ourselves where we have been and where we are now. This, of course, is also for the benefit of those of you who have not been walking with us on this journey, so you can have an idea of where we are in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So, where we have been and where we are now. Jesus has just finished a visit to his hometown of Nazareth, where he experienced rejection from the people who knew his family and who knew his background. But verse 6b, that's in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, verses 1 to 6. But in verse 6b, the last part of verse 6 of Mark chapter 6, it tells us that he traveled from village to village preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And many people were receiving him and responding with faith. So even though he was rejected by his hometown, he was received by countless others throughout Galilee and beyond. 
You know, this brings up a spiritual truth. Even at this point, early on in the message, that regardless to how people respond, the message of the gospel goes forward. The message of the gospel always goes forward, not backward. The gospel cannot fail. It cannot falter. The gospel cannot fall. The gospel only goes forward. Jesus keeps going in the story, in the situation. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus still does. He keeps going. Not only did he keep going then, and he keeps going now, but he keeps us going. The gospel keeps us going. So always remember, Jesus keeps going. And Jesus always knows what he's doing. Now begins a new phase in the ministry of Jesus. The disciples will be set out to preach the good news about Jesus. This is a new phase. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to pick up with uh, the end of verse 6 and read through verse 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, brothers and sisters, as we look at this passage today, first thing we want to look at is the disciples calling. They're calling in verse 7. Then in verses 8 through 11, we'll look at the disciples' commission. And finally, in verses 12 to 13, uh, the disciples' completion of this particular mission. First, they're calling in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now let's pause there for the next few minutes. The phrase, calling the twelve to him, reminds us of Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, 
when Jesus called the original four disciples. Do you remember who they were? We were there. We were there together in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, sometime back. He called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He called Peter, Andrew, and J James, and John with the promise that he would make them into fishers of men. He would make them to fish for people instead of fishing for fish. Because as you remember, they were fishermen by trade. It was their profession. And Peter and his brother Andrew owned a fishing business. And so did John and his brother James, who were sons of Zebedee, their father, who owned the fishing business. And they were in very close proximity to one another, fishing when Jesus called them to follow him. But not only do we remember this, 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 this phrase, the Lord calling them from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and following, but we also remember it from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and following, when Jesus called the 12 to him on the mountain where he would designate them as his apprentice preachers accompanying him. He would designate them as apprentice leaders, uh, if you will, uh, so that they would be with him. It was also right there, in, it is also right there in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, that we see the names of the original 12 there. James, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, Thomas, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, Levi, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would eventually betray him. Now, in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and following, he calls them in order to send them out to replicate his mission throughout Galilee. The twelve have been following Jesus closely and learning from his every move. Learning from his every move, watching him. They have been paying close attention to his ministry among the people. Listening to his teaching and his wisdom. Learning how he read and interpreted the Bible. And learning how he preached and taught the Bible. They, they were learning how he took care of himself and how he sacrificed himself on a daily basis. Watching how he interacted with people. How he interacted with family and friends. How he interacted with people who were sick and suffering. How he interacted with powers the powers of spiritual darkness, how he interacted with human authorities, both Jewish and Roman, how he interacted with his heavenly father through prayer, and much, much more. They watched him and watched him closely. The disciples were students in the school of Jesus 24-7, now, in any apprentice training program, there comes a time when the students must begin to actually do 
what they've been observing and learning from their teacher. The time has come for these 12 disciples to begin doing what they have been learning from the teacher of teachers. Even though they are still disciples who are learning, they have developed to the point where they must begin to practice what the Lord has been teaching and modeling for them and showing them. They were called by the Lord to begin doing what they had been learning. So Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits or evil spirits, if you will. Now, by sending out the 12, Jesus is expanding his mission through them. Sending them out is a powerful action that depicts God seeking and finding people who are lost. The lost do not come to God on their own. Indeed, they cannot come to the Lord on their own. By the way, none of us who are in the Lord came to the Lord on our own. You know, even if we, you know, use the language of decision, decisionism as some people refer to it, you know, that I just, there's an old beautiful song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. But that doesn't mean that I came to Jesus on my own. It means that God gave me enough grace to repent and respond to the call of salvation from Jesus. It never initiated with us. My salvation, your salvation, it, my salvation does not initiate with me. Your salvation does not initiate with you. It did not initiate with us. It initiated with him, Jesus said elsewhere to the disciples, you didn't call me, I call you. Mm. You know, that's a humbling truth that we ought to always remember. We didn't call on God first. God called on us and then gave us the grace to respond by calling out and crying out to him. God seeks sinners through us in the same way that he sought us through others. Just as the Father sent Jesus, the Son, into the world, Jesus begins to send the disciples out into the world seeking those who are lost. So Jesus is simply doing what the Father had already sent him to do. The reason he is here in this place with them at that particular time was solely because the Father had sent him and had determined to do so from eternity past. Jesus does not sit back and wait for everyone to come to him. 
he goes out seeking and preaching and reaching those who need God's grace. You see, the gospel is diffusive. The gospel must go out. It must be preached by those who are sent out to carry it to the ends of the earth. You see. The church is called to be outward oriented because the gospel must be taken out into the world. We should never allow ourselves to fall back into the posture of thinking that the world simply ought to find us and come to us and that's all there is to it. No, that's not the way the gospel works. And that's not the way the Lord works. Jesus sent his disciples, beginning with the 12. Later he would send 72 of them out. But beginning with these 12 apprentice leaders and preachers, he sends them out to find the lost, to preach to the lost. And that's what preaching does. That's what we're doing when we preach the word of God. We are, we are reaching out to those who are lost. We are proclaiming the good news of God's grace, that God's mercy and grace are available to sinners. We are telling people that God is in the business of saving sinners, that God's arms are wide open to those who respond to his call in faith. But it begins with his call, his call upon us, and continuing his call through us to the world. And when I say us, I'm not just talking about those of us who are pastors, who are called to be pastors and preachers, in the pulpit and called to be leaders, therefore, of the church and to exercise spiritual authority in the church. No, this also applies to all Christian believers, uh, this part about going and telling others about the good news of God's grace. We have been saved for such a purpose as this. We have not been saved to be selfish, nor have we been saved to be self-centered. Now, yes, it is true, brothers and sisters, we live in a very selfish and self-centered world. You could even say and go so far as to say that we live in a very narcissistic culture, and it has a very pervasive influence upon all of us. But by God's grace, we are able through the Holy Spirit who lives within us to escape the pollution of this world to escape the, the pressure on, of this world upon us, the pressure to be self-centered, to be selfish, and even narcissistic. The Lord has called us to be outwardly oriented and outwardly focused with the good news of the message of God's grace. And the church is called to be outwardly oriented because the gospel must be taken out into the world. So, listen. You have more than one reason 
for being in the house of the Lord, gathered with the other worshiping Christian believers on the Lord's day. Yes, first and foremost, the most important priority is to worship God. That's why we're here. That's our first number one priority, to worship God. And we're here to worship God because God reached us. He called us to faith in him. He has called us and saved us to worship him. Ah, but we do not stop there. For our worship then must result in going out into the world and carrying the good news of the word of God that we have received as we have worshiped in the presence of the Lord on the Lord's day. In other words, what you hear, what you're hearing now, what you are receiving from God's word, you should spread outside and beyond the confines of the gathered community of this congregation. Every one of us who've been redeemed, not just the pastor, not just the leaders of the church, but everyone, every believer in the church has been called to this. You are not learning in worship for the sake of simply stacking up and piling up knowledge in your head. Now, I think that's what some in the church do. Stack up, pile up, and store up knowledge. Well, yes, we should be growing in knowledge. There's no question about that. And there's no glory of God in not growing in knowledge. We should be growing in the knowledge of the Lord. That is a part of what it means to be saved, to be a Christian, and to walk with God. But we're not storing up and stacking up knowledge for our own sake only. That's, see, that's a part of the pressure of the influences of the selfishness of the culture in which we live every day. That everything has to be about me, myself, and I. <laughs> and if a church is not about me, myself, and I, then I don't want to be a part of that church. Most people, it seems nowadays, want to be a part of a church that, that is all about me, myself, and I. Let me ask you a question. If you are genuinely saved, did Jesus save you for me, myself, and I? No. That's not salvation. That's selfishness. Jesus saved you and me for his glory, not for ours, for his glory and not for our comfort, for his glory, not for our agenda, for his kingdom agenda, not for my little personal kingdom. Oh, yes, we should be thankful for every blessing the Lord has given to us. And we should be thankful for the comforts that the Lord has allowed at least many of us Christians in this world up to this point, to live in. 
It may not always be this way. In fact, it won't be. Let me just go ahead and tell you that. And for countless millions of Christians around the world today, nothing is comfortable for them. We just happen to be in a society during this period in, in, in history, in human history, where we're in a place of comfort, quite frankly. Even those of us who are poor are better off than almost anybody else's poor people anywhere in the world. Just be truthful about it. Uh, that's the reason why we talked about the fruit of Thanksgiving last week, because, you know, God wants us to stop complaining about things not going our way and complaining about not having more than we already have when often we already have more than we need. And we're complaining and depressed and mad because we still can't get more. We can't have more. Listen, the Lord didn't save us for that kind of thinking. The Lord didn't save us for that kind of an attitude. No wonder you're feeling worse all the time and yet you're a Christian. You're feeling worse all the time because if all you ever focus on is yourself, then sooner or later, well, <laughs> focusing on yourself is a good way to lose your joy. And when you lose your joy in the Lord, yeah, that's what replaces it. Depression. It's true. And this is spiritual medicine for all of us. For all of us. So listen. God has called us to be about him and about the mission. And that's why he called these, the, the disciples, the twelve, to be about his mission in the world. And I want you to think about this too, especially in light of the pressures of selfishness and narcissism all around us. Jesus left. Jesus left all the eternal glories of heaven to come down to earth in order and into a world that was hostile to God and that is still hostile to God to this day, 2,000 years after he came, Jesus left all the glories of heaven to come down to save sinners who were not looking for him and who were not seeking him. Do you understand this? Do you really understand this? And yes, well, let's just make it a point of personal, practical application. Do you understand this for you? Do you understand what this means for you as a Christian believer? For you and for me? Hmm. Jesus left more than we even have the capacity to conceptualize and came into the world. And as Philippians chapter 2 says, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of humankind and being found as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He humbled himself and became obedient 
to death, even death on a cross. Wait a minute, who are we talking about again? Your Savior and mine, the Lord of glory, the one who was with God the Father in the beginning, bringing creation into existence, according to John chapter 1. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the one who died and rose again made himself nothing, took upon the very nature of a servant, being found in the form of a man. He humbled himself. Listen, if God could humble himself, then how much more should you and I, how much more should we humble ourselves in the sight of the God who condescended himself by sending his son into the world. For what purpose again? To save you and me and to save all who would believe. That's the heart and soul of the Christian gospel. And it's the message of good news. It is good news. It is the message of good news that we must carry that we must spread, that we must share, that we must give to others. And especially, not just, of course, during the Christmas holiday season, but especially during the Christmas holiday season, when people in their language and in their activities don't even realize that they are coming closer in proximity to the gospel at this time of the year, perhaps more than any other. Why? Because what are they doing? What's everybody doing? We just had Black Friday two days ago. What is everybody doing? Rushing out to the stores, some even spending money they don't have, right? For what purpose? To purchase gifts in order to give to their loved ones and their friends. Look at what they're doing. What they're doing is a picture of what God did on a far greater and grander and more profound scale when he gave his one and only son as the greatest gift ever for the salvation of our souls. We as Christians get all caught up in this business, as Brother Robert said during worship, we get ourselves all caught up in the materialism of this and miss the message of the gospel, the true message and meaning of Christmas. And people who are not saved, who are non-believers, non-religious, whatever they are, all the way to atheists, are doing this same thing every holiday season, trying to find the right gift, trying to give the best gifts, spending hard-earned money to show love to people. All of these things are elements of the Christian gospel, which ought to make it easier for us to tell them about the real reason for the season. <laughs> you might say, well, Pastor, how in the world can I do this? I don't know how to. Well, listen. Okay, let me just ask this. Are you going to have a gathering of people at your house on Christmas Day? 
Or are you going to be in a gathering of people at somebody's house on Christmas Day? Are you going to be getting together with somebody else on Christmas Day or somewhere thereabouts even? Not just Christmas Day, but somewhere in the Christmas season? Well, you know, it doesn't hurt if you have opportunity, opportunity, to just say a few words and remind people of what the season is really all about, especially amid all the stress and the struggle, because everybody, everybody, saved and non-saved, can relate to the stress and struggle of the holidays. And maybe plant just some seeds or just a phrase or a sentence or some words about, you know, just what the holiday really is about. That actually, all holidays should be holy days, but most certainly this holiday ought to be a holy day. Why? Because of the birth of the Savior of the world. If there's one time in the year when non-believers will let you talk about Jesus easier than at any other time, it's Christmas. Because this is often the time when they come the closest to the gospel in all the activities that they're doing. Again, the church is called to be outward-oriented because the gospel must be taken out into the world. This means that every Christian is sent out by the Lord to spread the gospel in all kinds of ways and through all kinds of interactions with people. You don't have to stand up on a soapbox and preach like I'm doing. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you may not even have an opportunity to use words. But that doesn't stop from communicating a message. It's easy to hand somebody a Bible verse, to hand somebody, you know, a little booklet that we call a gospel tracts, you know, that you hand to somebody, give them the message. Even if you can't, even if there's not an opportunity to talk to them, you know, but even if you don't have that, Jesus said, let your light so shine among people that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So just doing good deeds for people and giving God the credit, giving Jesus the glory for it, points people to Jesus. People can't get mad at you over your faith in Jesus if you're doing something for them that they need your help in. If you're giving people food because they need food, you know, they're not going to necessarily, it's a little hard for them, I'll put it this way, a little hard for them, a little bit hard for them to get mad at you about Jesus. If you tell them that I am doing this because Jesus told me to. Because I'm a Christian and Jesus loves you just as he loved me. And I'm giving you this gift because God has given to all of us the greatest gift ever. 
If you don't remember anything else, if you can't come up with any other words in the moment, just remember this. And if you can just say this, if you can even just get a word in edgewise, here it is. Jesus is the greatest gift ever. The scripture goes on to say that Jesus sent them out two by two. Now, saints, I'm not going to finish this passage today, but that's okay. As we normally do, we pick up from where we left off the previous Sunday and stay with the story. Jesus sent them out two by two. Why does he send them out two by two? Hmm. You ever thought about that? Well, let's think about it together for just the next few moments before we close for the day. Sending the disciples out in twos, well, for one thing, on a practical level, it provides a measure of security. A measure of security. Two is better than one. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Jot that down and read it. It's a wonderful passage. It says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. In addition to this, sending the disciples out in twos, would satisfy the Old Testament requirement of having two or three witnesses to any event according to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15, which says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So having them go out two by two was biblical and wise, especially since they would be traveling from village to village in Galilee. And to have two witnesses to the message of good news that is being shared is a fulfillment of God's word to have at least two or three witnesses to testify. Discipleship is not a solo thing. That's another reason. Discipleship isn't a solo thing. Evangelism isn't a solo thing. 
Making disciples is not a solo thing. Jesus did not send them out as lone rangers. Two would be able to help one another deal with whatever they encountered in their missionary travels. One commentator writes, and I quote, Traveling in pairs was advantageous in several respects. It provided company and common counsel. And it augmented each partner with complimentary gifts. It also benefited their hearers, for in the Jewish world, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, end quote. You see that, brothers and sisters? It provided company and common counsel, companionship. And perhaps one had gifts in uh, uh, certain gifts in a certain area, and the other had other gifts in another area, and they complemented one another as they went out together in twos, you see. This is important. This is why when we talk about sharing Jesus with people, you know, it's always good if you can do it with another believer around or with you or in close proximity. Somebody who can testify that what you're saying is the truth, that you're not making it up. And not only that, it gives you and me um, an extra measure of courage. Harder to muster up courage. It's harder to muster up courage when you're alone. It's easier to muster up courage when you have a companion, somebody with you who can support you, who can back you up, you know. If you're stumbling over your words, they can help clean it up <laughs> as you're trying to communicate the, the message of good news as clearly as you can to somebody, you see. Jesus also gave them authority over impure spirits. He gave them permission to, to access his spiritual authority over the demonic. He empowered them to expel demons from people as he had done. You see, the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by powerful spiritual deeds. The gospel brings spiritual power to overcome the spiritual darkness in people's lives. By the way, you've heard me say this in past years over the last decade and a half from time to time, but for me, every Sunday it is a reality that when I'm preaching, there is a battle going on an unseen spiritual battle going on for the minds and the hearts of those of you to whom I preach each and every Sunday. The devil would love to distract your mind and your thinking, cloud and clog up your ears, cause your mind to wander so that you miss truth that you need to hear or otherwise divert and distract you 
from the word of God so that you do not hear the grace of God in the word of God for you. There's a spiritual war going on even in this moment. Now, yes, we're all quiet. We're all sitting here and we're all participating. And yet at the same time, this is exactly what the devil and the powers of darkness do not want. And he manages to win many victories by keeping people from coming in the first place. His biggest victory is to keep them from even getting in the door. Now, if you get in the door <laughs> to worship, well, the devil doesn't stop. In fact, he often intensifies his spiritual attack against us when we assemble together in all kinds of ways. See, I know, looking at all of us in here right now, I mean, if I took a picture of you, you look fine, you look good, you look like you're in a good place. But this picture would not tell the whole story. For example, the story of what you went to get here, what you went through to get here in the first place this morning, or what happened to you on yesterday, or what has been happening to you in your life during the course of the week, or what you're even struggling with even right now, somebody might be blowing up your phone right now trying to call you away, pull you away, and distract you. You got to turn the phone off. <laughs> it's a spiritual war that goes on constantly all the time, distorting and distracting and seeking to destroy the word of God, seeking to make the seed of the word uh, ineffective, uh, to making the seed of the word fall on poor soil, the poor soil of our minds and our hearts when we get all mixed up on the inside and have trouble hearing and listening. You see, one of the most powerful things that you do as a Christian is Come before the presence of the Lord on the Lord's day and sit down, yes, stand up and worship and praise, yes, but also sit down and submit yourself to the teaching and the truth of God's word, trusting that over time, God's word will accomplish God's purpose in your soul and in your life. This is the stuff of which spiritual growth is made. See, there are many of us in the congregation who can testify that by submitting ourselves to the truth and teaching of God's word week in and week out on the Lord's day, God has brought miraculous transformation in our lives that we never even could have imagined. God's word has met needs we didn't even know we had. And by the time we figure out and understand whatever was wrong that we didn't know about, 
We just have to give God all the praise because God knew what was going on within us when we didn't even know what was going on. We thought we knew, but we didn't know half of what we thought we knew. God knew. God knows everything. And for the preacher's part, it's my responsibility to teach and to preach God's word into your soul and let God's word do whatever work God knows needs to be done within you. But that can't happen if you're not here. That can't happen if you're not present in some way or form, even online, and engaged, you see. If you're disengaged and distracted, the devil is winning at least a battle or two. And that's what we don't want to happen. He doesn't need to win any battles. He has already done more than enough destruction everywhere in everybody's life. We've all seen more than enough of it, you see. Here he empowered his disciples to expel demons from people just as he had done. <clears throat> and that this preaching of the gospel was accompanied by powerful spiritual deeds overcoming the spiritual darkness in people's lives, the spiritual authority, spiritual authority over spiritual darkness was given the 12 and it is extended to us who are called to preach the word of God. For my part as the pastor teacher, I've been given authority to declare to you and preach to you the word of God in so doing I am exercising a certain spiritual authority with this congregation that God has given to me, an authority that God has given to me by virtue of his divine calling upon me. I'm not up here talking simply because I like to hear myself talk. This is not entertainment. Even though every now and again I might say something that's funny. And that's usually accidental, by the way. <laughs> but that's okay. God has a sense of humor, too. So, brothers and sisters, the exercise of this spiritual authority that has been given to us who have been called to preach just as Jesus called the original 12 to be preachers of the word of God is a spiritual authority that has been entrusted to us. And it is a spiritual authority that I take seriously as a servant of God. Why? Because I have to answer for every sermon I ever preach. I have to answer for everything I have ever said in every sermon that I have ever preached. God will bring it all up again before me and I'll have to give account to him. You will have to give account to him for how you receive his word. You will have to give account to him for how you respected the authority of God's word by obeying his word. 
The powers of the devil are overthrown by the power of God through the preaching of the word of God. It's the preaching of the word of God that purifies the Christian soul and purifies the human soul. It's the word of God that will enable you, that will bless you to overcome your demons. Real and literal demons in the case of some people and figurative demons also that the demons will use to their, the real demons will use to their advantage against us. The spiritual, the, the power of spiritual darkness is real, not imaginary. But the power of God is far superior. The demons are no match for the Lord and his word. Your personal demons are no match for God and his word. If you stop, open your Bible, listen to the word of God preached, and submit to obeying the word, then you will be victorious over all the demons in your life, whatever they are, and whoever they are. God is able to deliver us from all evil, from sin, from sinful habits and addictions, and every manner of self-defeat and self-destruction. All of this is contained in those powerful words of Jesus in the middle of the model prayer. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your holy presence and thank you for your grace. The grace of your word, the grace of the work of your Holy Spirit, bringing to bear the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the convicting power of the word upon our souls, in our lives, in our minds. May your word right now, even in this delicate spiritual moment, may your word powerfully impact and affect our souls. May your word, Father, permeate the whole person of each one of us. May your word, Father, accomplish your purpose within each one of us. And may your word continue to do your work of redemption within each and every one of us, even after we leave this place today, even as we go out into the world, not only today, but each and every day. May your word continue to do its work powerfully within each of us, in our minds, in our memories, in our hearts, in our lives, in our words, and in our deeds. And Father, we pray now for any under the sound of my voice who have heard this word preached today who, who is not saved, any person who is not saved, who has not repented and believed the gospel, we pray for his or her salvation right now. May the Holy Spirit convict 
each and every sinner of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment that is sure to come. And, oh God, we pray that as your Holy Spirit brings the weight of conviction upon the soul of the sinner, that he or she will repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, that he rose on the third day, that he ascended back to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of your majesty on high. He is soon to return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, in his name we pray. Amen and amen.